Singularity. My name is Nicola and you're watching Singularity FM, the place where we interview the future. If you guys enjoy this show, you can help me make it better in two ways. One, you can go to iTunes and write a brief review for my show. Or two, you can actually become a patron uh, via the recently launched, launched Patreon campaign by going to patreon.com forward slash singularity FM. Today, my guest on the show is the legendary head of the legendary MIT Media Lab. So, Joy Ito, welcome to Singularity FM. Hi, uh, thank you for having me today. Fantastic, Joy. I've been, uh, you know, working on this interview for a while now. So, I read your book, Whiplash, or I should say, I listened to it uh, as an audiobook and I, I browsed through it. I, I read your thesis draft that you sent me, and I probably watched 15 hours of videos and interviews with you <laughs> as a preparation for this. So I've been looking for this so much. But for some of our audience who may not be familiar with who you are and what you do, can you please introduce yourself in a couple of words? <laughs> it's hard in a couple of words, but uh, 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 I'm currently at MIT at the Media Lab, but this is in the last seven years. And before that, I was uh, very involved in the development of uh, the internet, uh, running an ISP, running uh, Creative Commons. And most of my background actually is in internet entrepreneurship and uh, venture investing. So if I force you to pick a single word, would, you, would that be an entrepreneur that describes you best or what? Um. I think it's an entrepreneurial activist. Ah. Or Timothy Leary used to use the term performing philosopher. Uh, <laughs> I think other people have described the category of what I do as uh, public intellectual work. So some, some variation of that, but it's the application of ideas to try to tr change things. You know, I love Timothy Leary too, but but I do like your version better uh, for yourself. I mean, uh, wh what did you say? Entrepreneurial activist. Activist, yeah. I think that's really unique and memorable. So, And I think that fits you very well. I just made that up. I'm going to start using it. <laughs> well, that's the whole point of conversations like this, right? This is what Socrates yeah. was all about, to create a symposium where each of us discovers something new, something fresh, right? So mm -hmm. I'm, I'm very happy if this interview helped me be a midwife to you discovering that you are the <laughs> entrepreneurial activist that you are. That's a great start, by the way. So um, let's throw another fun question there. Dog person or a cat person? Dog. Dog. Why dog? Uh, well, let's see. Well, mostly I've had dogs. But I think dogs are more social, and I think that my primary uh, medium of uh, of uh, of expression and intervention is in communities rather than by myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and as Ryan Holiday says, cats is cats are just animals that live in your house. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, because they're always kind of like giving the impression that, you know, they don't really need you for anything. They just like give you the grace of hanging out in your place, but they can take off anytime they feel like it. Whereas dogs, they, they, they train you. <laughs> absolutely. Dogs train you. Exactly right. What kind of dog did you have, by the way? 
So, so we have two Japanese uh, mutts. Uh, we used to live in the countryside in Japan, mm -hmm. and they're kind of like the local security system because you can hear when there's a stranger in the village by whose dog is barking, and so <laughs> they just give you these dogs as part of the ecosystem of the village. And we brought them to Boston with us when we moved. So, are they barking now all day long? A lot, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so tell me how someone who gets kicked out of kindergarten then becomes a DJ in the south side of Chicago nightclub and then eventually gets uh, drops out of college two, maybe even three times, ends up becoming a head of a major part of one of the most sort of impressive educational institutions from around the world. How is that even possible? You don't even have an undergraduate degree, as far as I no. know. No, I don't. Um, <laughs> it's it's a, it, it, well, it was it's a long story. I think the uh, I I never thought I would be in an academic institution, and um, the media lab was going through a fairly extensive search trying to find a new director. And uh, originally, I knew Nicholas Negroponte, the founder, and I knew some people who were on the search committee. But when I sent Nicholas my CV and he realized I hadn't graduated from college, he first said, oh, this isn't going to work. So don't, you know, we won't formally put you in. But then after, I guess, several hundred uh, uh, going through all the applicants, they ran out without finding anybody. Um, and so they decided to change the criteria and had me come back in. And I met them for a few days, the students and the faculty and staff, and uh, we just hit it off. And it just became, and, and this is what's sort of wonderful about MIT. I think it was it's a quite a pragmatic uh, school. So once the lab decided that it made sense, uh, the provost and the, uh, the president, the dean were, I guess the president was involved, but the provost basically welcomed me in um, very warmly. And, and, you know, and it's never been an issue uh, once I've gotten there. And I think the key thing is the Media Lab is not a traditional research lab. And it's, um, you know, I think that we're now doing so many things that the only way you can actually support the lab is you almost have to be interested in everything which is kind of the opposite of what academics are supposed to do. So finding somebody with an academic career that could be interested in everything was actually quite a challenge. So they had to reach out of their traditional pool. Mm -hmm. This is one of the reasons, by the way, why I never did a PhD is because I was like interested by in everything. But I, I can't remember whose quote it was, but somebody said that a person who follows their own curiosity is always interested in everything. Uh, whereas the, the people who are interested in only one thing are kind of just like following orders, almost like. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's, I think there's a, there's a, my, as you mentioned, I'm now working on a PhD, but it's very hard because the PhD is a PhD about how you can be interested in everything. And so, but you can, you can kind of try to get there. You're a philosopher. And I think there's a interesting history of science and a philosophy around how, uh, knowledge and uh, uh, disciplines get created and how they're centered around communities. And so as somebody who enjoys thinking about communities, I've been trying to figure out, um, and this I won't complete in the PhD, but it will begin this exploration. What is the architecture 
and the values of a community uh, that has uh, a way to think about things very broadly, but still rigorously. That's, I think, our challenge at the Media Lab. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to talk about your thesis a bit later on, and I have a, okay. a copy of, <laughs> of, of it right here next to me. But let me ask you before that, uh, why did you feel or did you feel compelled in any way because of that lack of previous degree to, to do? Why do a PhD now? Yeah, I you know I was working on and I, and I also dropped out of several PhD. I dropped out of a DBA. And how can you even do one if you didn't even do an undergrad? Like, how is that even possible? <laughs> I think in Europe um, and in the U.S. they have not. I'm sorry, not in the U.S. but in Europe and in Japan they have a a peculiar category of PhD called a thesis PhD, where you present a thesis, uh, basically the dissertation draft. They admit you, and then you do the defense first. And then the dissertation is really about the work you've done in your life and how that represents and proves your contribution based on your thesis. So it's different from a traditional one. And I got to the point where I was, I'd been thinking about the Media Lab and its context within academia for the last, you know, seven years. And I realized that what I was doing was trying to put together all of these things. And uh, the PhD format isn't the best, but it's a decent format. And two things, I think my students, many of them are PhD students. And so going through the process and sort of getting an understanding of what they're going through. And I, I, you know, I I thought theoretically that was true, but as I did the dissertation, I realized it was factually correct, that it was something that you really don't understand unless you try to do it. And then I think the the, um, other thing is my um, advisor that I had been working with at, uh, K University, Jun Murai, who's the father of the Japanese internet, he's going to retire eventually. And so he said, you should do this before I retire. So that, those <laughs> are the two, the two things. Wow. Yeah, because it's funny how you, you have PhD students that you teach, and yet you don't even have an undergraduate degree. <laughs> That's phenomenal. But let me ask you this. Who was the person who had the biggest impact on your life? I had, so I was very, uh, I think the thing that, uh, so I'm very lucky. Uh, I think most people who are successful are lucky. I don't think you could be successful without a lot of luck. And if I had to pick the thing that I was lucky about is I had the luck of meeting some very important to me uh, mentors along the way at kind of appropriate moments. And so I think the first person who really uh, influenced me was my father's professor, Dr. Fukui, who was a, he won a Nobel Prize in chemistry, but he, uh, in Japan, you're very narrow. So if you're a chemist, you're supposed, only supposed to talk about chemistry, but he had, in, you know, in the, in the sixties uh, was uh, talking about um, hydrogen economy and solar, and he had views on poverty. And, and so as a 13 year old, he would sit with me for hours talking to me about chaos and about, actually, he was the one that suggested that you can't upload the, bra- the brain to a computer um, when I was 13. So in the like early 80s, I was so excited about computers. I still remember this. And I um, uh, I had learned about computers and um, uh, I had a two-hour dinner with him. And I said, I, I am going to upload my brain to a computer. <laughs> and And he said, he said, he didn't say absolutely no, but he said, go study chaos theory and come back and let's talk. 
And um, and this is at 13, so you're a very small kid. So I then started reading. And basically the point was the world is quite complex and it's not as easy as you think. And then later when I was um, in, my high, in high school, I got excited about the Internet. It was explaining the Internet to him. And he said, you know, beware of fluctuation amplification, which is, turns out I think is a, one of the bigger problems. So, so those ideas really helped. And still, as you can see, I'm still thinking about them. And then I think the other person is uh, Timothy Leary, who I met when I was 20, just turning 24. And he was kind of knocked me off of this path I was on to, that was a little bit sort of going into the spiritual uh, uh, path, looking for a guru. And he sort of very quickly uh, uh, said, this is all, most of it's a joke. Most of it's not true. There is no guru. You know, think for yourself. You know, his whole his whole thing was think for yourself and question authority, and so so that got me into a different mode in my early twenties. Um, and then there have been others. You know, um, Stan Shinsky, who was a college dropout or high school dropout, who created the field of amorphous materials, and um, um, and uh, and 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 many other people. So that's that's why I was able to, without any education, stumble around and learn. Was I was able to uh, go find people who were, in your, in your words, through a Socratic method, um, engage. And I think, I think what I, I still do this as well is I think some of the most interesting people love talking to children because it challenges them to explain things in, in, in um, understandable ways. And kids often give you uh, or ask you questions or give you insights that um, people in your field might not. So, so I think this relationship between mentors and, um, and, uh, and, and students is, is a really important piece and that I think a good uh, university experience will give it to you, but you don't necessarily need to go to university for that. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I couldn't agree more with you. And and there's three things that I just want to very briefly touch on here based on what you said. The first thing is that uh, you said you've been very lucky to have tremendous mentors at different points in your life. And that reminds me to a Japanese saying which says, when the student is ready, the teacher shows up. So I think you are ready on that on, on your journey to meet those people. Uh, the other thing is that uh, you're talking about how Timothy Leary pushed you not to seek the guru. Uh, and basically, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of uh, Zen. And they're saying uh, that, what was the saying? Well, I think Alan Watts says that if you think you need a guru and you need to go to Japan, then you need a guru and you need to go to Japan. But you don't have to. You can find it anywhere. And w basically, it's up to you. Uh, so, so you don't really need a guru or to go to a particular place, just like you don't need 20 years to, to, to reach enlightenment. You can actually get it in five seconds. It can take 20 years, but it can take five seconds, you know, it, it, and it's up to you. And then lastly, you called me a philosopher, so I, I just want to be uh, clear that I am a, a, at best a simple philosopher in the, in the sort of a school of so Socrates, rather than, let's say, an advanced philosopher like Kant uh, and, you know, his categorical imperative and all of that. I'm more of a simple philosopher who is interested, as you said, in asking good questions and in helping people apply philosophy in their daily life, which I think is the original spirit of philosophy, which is why I'm most attracted to ancient Greek and Roman philosophy like Stoicism, because I believe that kind of philosophy has immediate application today, just as much as it had two or three thousand years ago. And, and uh, you're always asking questions. I've also listened to a number of your podcasts now. And, 
this was a story that Timothy Leary told me was um, there are these kids trying to find the meaning of life. So they go to India and they search for years going into the mountains and finally they find the guru who knows the meaning of life and they ask the guru, what is the meaning of life? And the guru says, wet birds don't fly at night. <laughs> and, and then they say, the students, the kids say, they don't? And the guru says, do they? <laughs> that's brilliant that's typical typical zen that's that's brilliant loving it so let me ask you this though you said you listen to a number of my podcasts yes how come and, and like, like which one is your favorite or your least favorite um so well when i got invited to your podcast uh I originally thought, um, reading the email that you sent me, that I was going to be invited into as a guest into a sermon at the Church of Singularity. So <laughs> I, I, I thought that I needed to at least know my enemy. So I decided I should listen and kind of get an understanding of what I was in for. Um, but I was surprised, uh, pleasantly surprised. And, um, uh, you know, I, 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 you were, you were, first of all, very uh, focused on ethics, which I think is important. Um, and uh, I, I'm very interested to find the things we disagree on, because it seems like there's more agreement than I imagined. And, um, you know, I, I, I can't remember his name now. The word, it was an Indian doc guy who had... Amish Patel. That was the April Fool's joke. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's was it actually a joke the whole it thing? was an april fools oh 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 it was very funny i thought i thought that was very funny um and uh but but in terms of the the serious ones you know i i um you know i'm trying to remember i i listened to well i, I really liked your manifesto so that helped me get a sense of uh i think you're thinking more than anything else on how you approached it um, I also listened to one where you were talking to a nano uh, 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 physicist that worked in nanotech, uh, um, and and it was interesting because it actually triggered some. So we have a group at the Media Lab called Synthetic Neurobiology where we're doing nano level uh, 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 visualization, but also perturbing uh, neurons. And uh, really trying to get to the simulation idea, and and he was bringing up this idea of the um, uh, the randomness of quantum mechanics and how the idea that the brain can be reduced into a mechanical simulation he thought was just impossible from a physics perspective. Um, and I can have there's an unpublished work, so I, it's been mentioned in conferences, but it's it's still not published. But we're starting to see some really interesting. Um, order in and coordination in layers that we can't understand. And so there's this very interesting sort of stuff that as you, you start to tease into some of these questions about uh, simulations and uh, and chaos and randomness. And, and it, I, I heard that in a, a couple. So I, I, I skimmed a few of the podcasts and listened to a few uh, all the way through. So, uh, but those were, those were some of the memorable moments. Well, thank you very much. I, I really, really appreciate that. Um, and I, I have to admit, as the name suggests, I did start like a basically a singularity fanboy, but that was uh, ten years ago. And in my journey, as I've been asking these questions and kind of trying to keep what you know Zen Buddhists say called beginner's mind, 
you know, I've kind of started to sort of distance myself, especially from the labels now, singularitarian and transhumanist. I really don't like those labels anymore. And and I think you actually took one of your interviewees to task as the same guy for using those interchangeably. Um, but but can I the, the question I wanted to ask you is, uh, you know, what is your definition of the sort of values of the singularity movement and the transhumanist movement? Because I use the word singularitarian in my paper and I'm pointing to a particular belief system, but I wanted to make sure that uh, we're talking about the same thing. Right. Yeah. So I, I was going to get uh, into that a little bit later about your views on the singularity, but that's okay. Let me answer your question now. So my take is a little bit different. So first of all, my definition of the singularity uh, divides into two, uh, two of the main sort of camps. One is the so-called the event horizon uh, definition where... Uh, you know, our ability to model and predict the future basically falls apart. So I think that currently where we are at right now, given the exponential technology and disruptive change that we're witnessing everywhere, our ability to predict how governance would look like in 20 or 30 years, how the family would look, how society would look, how our economic system, how religions would respond to this, how the law and politics and culture would respond to all of this, basically falls apart. Like, I don't believe we can predict uh, what will happen in 30 or 40 years and, and how those things would pan out. J just like we could predict, for example, in the 1800s or let's say the 1200s, we could predict that the 1300s would not be too much different, perhaps. So that's one of the part of the definition, my definition of singularity. And the other part is basically the moment when machines become smarter than humans. That, those are my definitions, basically. And as far as transhumanism goes, to me, and another reason why I don't like the term transhumanism is that uh, I think it's the nature of humanity to transcend uh, our biological limitations from the get-go. Basically, whether we have fire, whether we have clothes or not, whether we have glasses, everything is helping us transcend our limitations. And so I don't see there's a particular line in the sand beyond which you stop being human and you become transhuman per se, right? So in a way, trans being transhuman is kind of being human. That's what we've always done, right? Which is why I think I'd rather usually just call it human. But the idea of transhumanism is that basically science and technology help us overcome our biological limitations. Can I poke two questions? Back? Of course, of course. So, um because singularity often talks about the exponential growth as the primary driver of this. And it's also tends to be normative that it's a good thing. Right, right. Which is one of my problems with the, the singularity. My argument is that we don't know that it could be a good thing, but it could be a bad. It could be a bad. Okay. And I feel like the complexity is part of the reason you can't predict the future, not just because it's going up so fast. You know, and it feels uh, absolutely. like the... That, that the sort of measurable exponential growth, which is tied to the people's addiction to wealth, I think makes singularity to me feel like the bubble that will never end and that will bring <laughs> abundance, you know, and to me, complexity doesn't necessarily bring abundance. And I think in one of the 
uh, I think, for instance, in um, uh, Peter Diamantis, who's uh, you know he's a friend, but but he even on the website it says the abundance that will finally feed all men, women, and children on Earth. Well, we have enough food for all men and women and children on Earth. It's not distributed properly, Absolutely. and the distribution problem is a complex system problem, not an abundance problem. And so exactly. my concern is, and, it, and for systems dynamics, I mean, exponential growth is things like cancer are exponential, you know? And so so exponential is is, is usually a bad thing. It's, it's only a good thing Absolutely. is dangerous. And so so my, my concern with singularity and with the transhumanist movement, and this is kind of what I was, I think, um, trying to say in my essay that we might talk about is that the church and the cult of singularity and transhumanism that is normatively pushing people to believe that we should achieve these at all costs and that that transcendence, whether it's in the singularity sense or in the transhuman sense, is sort of by definition a good thing and that power is good and both of these help us achieve power. That That's the framework that I find somewhat uh, 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 troublesome. And we are 100% in alignment with that because the whole point of me starting my blog, coming from the Greco-Roman philosophical perspective, was to say that technology is not enough, that technology in itself is amoral, that, and I even wrote this short article called Technology is Not Enough, where I say exactly this, we have all the tools and, and uh, the abundance to build uh, to give food to everyone, to build housing to everyone, to give them fresh water and, and so on. And yet we're not accomplishing that, right? So it's not a matter of abundance or technology only, right? Technology is not enough. There's a lot more other things that we need to figure out. Um, and, and one of those, I say, is ethics. Or ethics is probably the broader envelope which uh, encompasses all of those other things. Uh, and, and that's where I saw the, my sort of calling, my fitting in the whole grander scheme of things is to bring in that conversation. Because when I started this 10 years ago, I thought it was lacking. And I, I believe, by the way, to this day that it, it still lacks, uh, especially in Silicon Valley, by the way, where people tend to be sort of techno-utopian and and. and you know, people say I'm kind of very negative in that sense, and maybe they're right. But on the other hand, they have the positive bias where you see everything in black and white, sort of uh, money or not money, uh, growth or no growth, kind of simple measurements, which I don't believe GDP or decrease or increase, which I don't believe capture properly where we're headed, what our current situation is, and whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. Uh, so I think it takes a lot more sophistication and we got to go a lot deeper to, to get to the core. And, and I believe that the Socratic method of investigation can help us get there, by the way, which is why I've been doing what I'm doing and I've been asking the questions that I've been asking now for 10 years. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> but let me go back on topic here because we kind of digressed uh, uh, to me, whereas this conversation is about you because you see, I'm just the sort of the, the starting point, but, but I want to be the midwife to my audience giving birth to their own ideas. And so today it's about you and your ideas and your work. It's not about me. So... Um, let me ask you this. What's your biggest dream? My biggest dream? Um, I think my dream is, uh, so I don't have traditional um, goal-like dreams um, because I'm much more of a, 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 
I think, a process-oriented person than I am a goal-oriented person. So I think my dream is that I uh, am able to continue to uh, feel like I'm flourishing and meeting interesting people and contributing to uh, the system in an appropriate way. And I think it's tricky because the words here are very difficult and it gets into the the, the substance of our conversation, I think. But I think um, the idea of making the world a better place, it's for who at what time scale, you know, and some moments when I'm meditating and thinking about the universe, I think in very long time scales beyond human beings. And I think about what my ideas and what I will be in that context. And then when I'm with my, you know, newborn 11 month old child, I'm very in the moment thinking about her well-being. But I think, you know, the, the, I guess so my happiness is really to be able to think across scales and to feel, uh, like I'm having a, 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 a thoughtful and, uh, 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 an integrated relationship with everything around me. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. And you said that you meditate. Do you do that often? Yeah, I, I do it often. And I teach a class called self-awareness, or it's actually called principles of awareness with uh, Tenzin Priyadarshi, who is a, a, a Buddhist monk. And uh, we start every class with 20 minutes of silence. And we, require all the students to meditate and sleep uh, seven hours a day. Yesterday, we had somebody come in and teach Qigong. And so, especially during the semesters where I'm teaching it, which is a spring semester, I'm quite diligent about meditating every day. Um, and then throughout the year, I, uh, I I meditate, but I'm not nearly as uh, 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 disciplined about it. But I, but I, I, I meditate quite frequently, yes. Wow. You make me go want to go back to school, <laughs> to your <laughs> school, uh, to, to the MIT Media Lab anyway. Um, so why do you meditate? Are you religious in any way? I'm not religious in any normal way. You know, I think my family is Shinto, which is a polytheist, nature-oriented uh, belief system. And uh, uh, But I, I, I believe that there is... Uh, uh, part of the world that's unknowable. And while I'm very a big fan of uh, the scientific method and falsifiable claims, uh, I also think that uh, the ability for us to tap into things that we can't yet explain is um, an important thing to cultivate. And I think uh, you start with self-awareness. I think the contemplative side, both of uh, 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 of any 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 system I think is important and I think meditation is a great way to uh, get that self-awareness. Um, I also think intrinsic motivation is very important and I think that being self-aware uh, helps you both sort out all the motivations that you have and to develop uh, a stable intrinsic uh, motivation which I think also helps uh, stabilize uh, both your... In, in, so as a student of Buddhism you, you must know this but um, there's a great book called Destructive Emotions, where it's a Western psychologist talking to the Dalai Lama. And um, and it's interesting because the Buddhists view uh, destructive emotions like anxiety or fear very similarly to misunderstanding or cognitive uh, failure as uh, impairments to uh, seeing the truth. And for me, meditation, whether we're dealing with emotions 
or thinking about ideas, it's all a way to try to get you uh, closer to what might be true nature or the truth. And so I think it's a meditation is a very good way to clear your mind of and, and to become aware of biases, whether they're emotional or cognitive. And I think that helps you uh, uh, be much more centered, whether we're talking about philosophy or we're talking about, you know, uh, uh, our, our relationship to money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is why I usually try to put a couple of minutes of meditation before each of my interviews, by the way. But uh, you mentioned the, the Western kind of uh, fear uh, in that book. Uh, let me ask you this. So do you have a biggest fear by any chance? Um, I used to have more fears. Um, I don't think I have a uh, you know, I, I, so, so I think, you know, we have first order, second order, third order wants and fears. So, you know, maybe you want Oreos right now. That may be a first order <laughs> want, but you have another part of you that wants to not want Oreos right now. And then you have another part somewhere, which is what you want to want to want, you know? And so, 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 so I think it depends on what level you are at at the moment. So really zoomed out, like, let's say some people fear, you know, the communists are taking over or, you know, we're becoming more communist as a system or other fear that, you know, Trump is becoming uh, unhinged as one of the guests on my show said, uh, or others fear nuclear war. Elon Musk fears uh, artificial intelligence, uh, just like, by the way, Nick Bostrom or Dr. Stephen Hawking. So in that sense, yeah. Well, so so the problem is, I I when I zoom out, I zoom all the way out, and when I zoom <laughs> all the way out, I'm not afraid of anything because I think humans aren't really that great for uh, certain ecosystems. I I I there really isn't anything that uh, is fearful to me um, at in, in, at the end of all things, and so you know I I might have certain things that I feel if I were to pick, uh, you know, would I want uh, the end of humanity or not. Of course, as a human, I feel a duty to try to protect humanity, but would the end of humanity really be that awful from a cosmic perspective? I don't really know, probably not. And so, and this is where maybe the singularity folks and the transhumanists and I might differ because I think, you know, the, I think what will happen will happen and, uh, it's neither good nor bad. And I think we have a role as individuals in a population in an evolutionary system to try to behave in a way that's uh, consistent with our programming. <laughs> and, uh, and and so it's natural to have certain fears, natural not to want to jump in front of a car. It's natural to want to save humanity. And it's, and it's natural to try to protect the, and support the communities that we are in. But I don't view them so much as uh, fears. And I, I think of them more as a, I, I think I have a sensibility and a taste of how I would like my environment to be in. And I will nudge that environment in that direction, which tends to be uh, ethical, uh, uh, inclusive, uh, you know, free of violence and excessive suffering. So, so those things, I mean, the, my values are quite clear. Um, are your values therefore Shinto and or slash Buddhist in that way in, in terms of their origin? I think I have, uh, yes, I think the, the Shinto idea that, um, humans aren't particularly special, that we're all just part of nature. And this is a generally indigenous idea, which is that animist animist idea that, that nature doesn't belong to us. We belong to nature. So that's a, that's, I think I believe. And then, um, and, you know, and I'm, 
and and I am transhumanist in the way that you described it in your uh, manifesto, which is I I, I don't think that um, uh, our particular version of carbon-based neural intelligence should have special rights over any other kind of intelligence. I really like the way you frame that, and I would agree with that as well. Thank you. That's fantastic. Let me see if I can shift the question a little bit more to the core of what you are and what you do. What are the biggest problems that humanity is facing today in your view? So I think the biggest problems that we have, um, if we were to look at the system of the planet and, and society, um, is that a lot of the uh, positive feedback loops that we've created through uh, our capitalist system um, and our focus on creating and deploying technologies for uh, growth, convenience, and efficiency um, has created these exponential growths and markets that generally are going up. Um, but what we've done is we've externalized costs, uh, we've extracted from the environment, and we're creating uh, complex systems that had in the past been able to be adaptive. So the temperature of the earth, the temperature of our body, is usually in, in something like an equilibrium because our systems are, are self-adaptive. And I think by creating these uh, exponential systems, we've started to knock them off balance. So, you know, the, the life expectancy in the U.S. is now decreasing. Um, you see that the climate um, problem is not being solved. Um, it's still continuing to be, uh, you know, headed in the wrong direction. And we have, um, I would say, social inequity is a problem that uh, have, hasn't been solved. And this is not a new idea, but, you know, Danella Meadows and many of the systems dynamics people uh, were very clear, even back in the 60s and 70s when they were working with the Club of Rome, that these tools that we've created, like entrepreneurship and investment, actually cause the poverty um, because you're really taking money and extracting it from the working class and depositing it in the the passive capital class and that growth by itself often exacerbates these problems. But the problem in society is that these tools that served us very well, I think, you know, if you look at post-war Japan or post-war Europe, it was pretty obvious that we had to build bridges and factories and, and there were some fundamental infrastructural things that would lift people out of poverty that we did. Including education and healthcare, by the way, which are free in both Japan and, and across Europe usually. Absolutely. And I think our fight against infectious disease was tremendously successful. But now what we're seeing is that people are dying because of chronic diseases caused, caused by obesity and bad food. And, um, you know, and so all of the convenience that we built, all of the, uh, you know, driving around and, you know, and, and the abundance of calories and the all the things that helped us extend life actually are starting to Hurt, hurt us. And so I, but I think that the way that you intervene in a complex system like society or markets or climate, um, it's a very different approach than um, convening, uh, intervening in a, in a uh, uh, orderly system, a predictable system. And so, so I think that we don't currently have the tools, but I think we don't currently have the paradigm. So I think one of the things when you think about it from an evolutionary dynamics perspective is that the paradigm, which is uh, money and economics and all of the individuals and the systems evolving towards maximizing returns, for instance, um, uh, has driven us to work in this way. 
and they've locked us in a kind of a global prisoner's dilemma where each of us is pursuing their optimum strategy, but that leads to a sub suboptimum equilibrium. That's right. And and what's interesting when you talk to people like Martin Novak from the program of evolutionary dynamics is that um, he shows that actually cooperation is a fundamental feature in evolution. And that even human beings, when uh, you don't give them this sort of mechanism for calculation, um, will default to a more cooperative, altruistic uh, interaction. And that, in fact, the complexity that we generate in natural systems comes from cooperation, not from competition. So thinking about competition as the primary driver of education is actually wrong. So when they say Darwinian evolution, that's actually a very narrow piece of evolution. And what I think we've done is we've created a paradigm trying to increase the productivity of manufacturing that's uh, focused more on competition and focused on a, a single metric of, of growth and a reduction of the payout function that's created an unhealthy evolutionary system. And I think the way you change that oversimplified reductionist view, which is the economics view, is that you have to change the values of society so that greed doesn't Greed is good should sound stupid. Um, more than enough should sound appropriate. And it should feel disgusting to do things that um, hurt the system. And um, and I think there's a lot of actually academic work. Um, this was fun doing the research for my, my thesis that, that really does show um, that when you turn things into financial transactions, um, it will diminish the, uh, uh, the will for people to do the work. It will uh, extract a lot of the uh, diversity and nuance from uh, systems. And so, so I think this, this, uh, this uh, kind of neoliberal or this, this new uh, uh, short-term financial uh, model, I think, is is sort of the the key thing that we might need to change. And and, and again, I think a lot of eco economists, from um, you know Stiglitz to others, have 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 been poking at this. And and again, I fight with the economists all the time because they always say, "Well, you're being uh, unfair by focusing on GDP and all of uh, and the utility function." We've we're way beyond that. And I say, "Well, you may be way beyond that, but whenever you guys are on a panel, all you talk about is GDP." <laughs> so so the, so there's like the intellectual part, which is they have started to see the limits of their uh, of economics. But when you get an economist on a policy discussion, um, they're they're still reducing it to dollars and cents. So. So I will come back to this, but let me see if I can. I've got, you know, the, you're one of those people. Usually I can keep my my interviews easily for two or three hours, but you are one of those who I can keep probably for a week uh, and, and we'll still find new topics to talk about. But unfortunately, we only have about 80 minutes and we've used about 40 of them. So let me see if I can hit the main points I want to hit here in the following 40 minutes. So how does the MIT Media Lab fit within this context that you just painted for us with respect to those problems, or does it? Because many people may not be familiar with what the MIT lab is. Mm -hmm. So I think uh, when the Media Lab was started 31, two years ago, uh, it was also interestingly around the same time that Wired Magazine and um, Ted and all these, uh, and, and, you know, and Alan Kay famously said you, you invent the future, you predict the future by inventing it. And it was a very optimistic time, you know, when Apple computer was overthrowing, um, uh, IBM and, uh, you know, we were moving from the stock, the, the stodgy institutions of Boston to the free Silicon Valley mode. And so I think we were, you know, the media lab. 
Apple get the Oliver Stone commercial where we break the Brick Brother thing. And, and, and Apple delivered a box with a blinking cursor. Saying, oh, no, sorry, it was a Ridley Scott commercial. I apologize. Yeah. Uh, but, but the Apple computer was a blinking cursor saying, program me, right? Um, you know, now Apple, <laughs> it's, you break your warranty if you jailbreak it, right? So, so those were an optimistic period where everybody just wanted to be generative and open. And, um, and so the, the, over the last 30 years, I think we have started to realize that you can't just make stuff and that it will be good. And that even myself, I was quite optimistic about the internet really maybe just solving a lot of the world's problems by just giving everyone a voice. Um, and little did we know that just giving everyone a voice wasn't enough, you know? And so, so I think right now we're kind of in a mode where um, everyone in our industry, including the media lab needs to be reflective, uh, needs to realize that the complex problems that I was talking about are actually uh, not about just inventing more efficient or more convenient stuff. And the Media Lab has always been about the relationships between humans and machines, whether it's interfaces or internet or social media or uh, social physics. Um, but I think what we're realizing is that that relationship now has to include a lot more of the uh, philosophy, the social sciences, the humanities to try to build up uh, a, a framework of coevolution where uh, we have a reasonable and sensible uh, system so that we're not uh, uh, creating these out of control feedback systems. And we're also not creating an engineered uh, platform that's independent of the, uh, uh, the social values. And so integrating uh, uh, these values. And, it, it, and I think at the individual level, all of these engineers had uh, values and they had hopes that their technology would do uh, what you want to do. I mean, it's a great, uh, Seymour Papert was one of the early uh, um, uh, founding faculty of the Media Lab. And there are these old videos of him from the, um, you know, the, uh, the early days of personal computing. And he said, someday every school would have a computer and the computers will be, computer languages will be used to unlock people's creativity like a new language. And the whole point was they were going to learn to code so that they could uh, express themselves and be creative. But you know, today all of our coding is about vocational stuff so that you can become another programmer at a big tech firm. And, and it's not about being creative and it's not about expression. And so, so I think a lot of these uh, tools that we created at the Media Lab, assuming that they would just turn into these wonderfully creative, socially beneficial things have uh, uh, become a part of this uh, system. And so I'm not, I would, I would say, I don't, I don't think I speak on behalf of everyone at the Media Lab, but I do think that uh, there is a substantial number of faculty and students who are in a much more reflective and critical uh, view. We just did a, had a 60 minutes uh, 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 uh uh, segment done on us, which I, which was great, but it's interesting because I got cut out of most of it because I was talking mostly about the concern that I have for technology, but they wanted to just talk about the future factory of the media lab. And so one of the things that's kind of interesting, I think for me is that the media lab is often criticized for being techno utopian. And, um, uh, we have a lot of faculty and myself included who are optimistic, but critical, but the press doesn't pick up that side of the story. They want to pick up the the old shiny utopian side. And so the, it, it reinforces this impression that the Media Lab is really about um, just the happy stuff, you know. Which is, by the way, one of the sort of 
uh, niches that my show fits very well is because I interview a lot of people like you and one of the most common complaints that I get and you just basically gave it was that people go on TV or somewhere or in a documentary and they have a one or two hour interviews that ends up being edited into like two or three minute sound bites that end up being put in a way that they tell a story that has nothing to do with what the person was actually trying to say or, or arguing about. Right, and which is why, for example, I don't ever try to cut in, uh, in between uh, during our interview. I cut in the beginning, I cut in the end, and basically, I want to give the authentic, the real, the one hundred percent impression and view that people can put forward. Right, I don't want to edit you out, um, and and I think it's very important that we don't have edited conversations because we lose ninety percent of the meat, and of, and as you just said, in this case with sixty minutes great, great uh, series, uh, but they cut out the important stuff, it seems. Now, and, and let me focus a little bit on that here, uh, even though time is advancing, that you see one of the terms right now, because you're talking about the technology would not by itself be sufficient, even science would not by itself be sufficient, because one of the sort of the, the popular terms right now is STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math. And the idea is, if you get those four right, you know, we're going to be fine. My argument is no, we're not going to be fine because technology and even science and engineering are not enough. Even math is not enough. We need more. We need ethics. And you talk about uh, uh, bringing media, arts, and sciences. So we can bring STEM, but we also need media and arts at the Media Lab. So tell me about that. Why arts? Arts are the most useless thing you can do. I mean, think about it. Uh, Silicon Valley can't make money out of arts most of the time. You can't scale them. You can't... Uh, they don't fit in the economic paradigm we live in very well. And why, why even waste time, therefore, on them? They're not productive. So I think the really interesting point is that um, and, and this was an argument that we had with the even the art community when I was working on creating the arts category for Pre-Ars Electronica, which is a, a competition uh, in Austria. <clears throat> and the role of the artist is to use tools or use a technology in unexpected and unusual ways that weren't that the designer or a normal person would never do and also to try to help people reflect on uh, technologies and things from different uh, 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 perspectives that would not normally happen. And I think one of the problems that we have when we are focused on productivity and on returns is you get stuck in these local optimums and you get stuck in these uh, uh, patterns of, of, of belief or values um, and what, uh, Art is, is this, if you think about it from an evolutionary perspective, that's the mutation. That's the person who says, you know, I can actually turn this around and, and rotate it. What are you going to do about that? You know, and, <laughs> and people will say, why did you do that? They said, because, because. But now that you've turned it around, suddenly this thing that you thought was only this way, when you look at it sideways, you realize there's a, another dimension. And so artists, I think, just from a purely pragmatic perspective, they're the ones that help us advance um, by going into search spaces that you wouldn't go if you're purely uh, pursuing efficiency or financial returns. And then the other thing that they do is that they bring a social context 
in. And so critical design and a lot of artists. So so even I think it was um, uh, Tony and Fiona Raby's uh, lab at uh, 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 Royal Academy of uh, Arts, um, you know, they, they had a long time ago, even before we started talking about um, uh, self-driving car ethics, they had an art piece about uh, a self-driving car that uh, I think was trained in one country, not being allowed to be used in another country, and it was an artist I that from which I first heard that idea that you'd have uh, different uh, training contexts, and so so artists because they're free of having to actually prove exactly how you would do it, they might come up with ideas that would serve us well, and so so I think arts is. Um, in at a purely pragmatic way, that's one piece of it. And I think art also helps us take, uh, uh, and this gets a little bit into the design and aesthetics and philosophy, but um, you also could use art as a way to translate um, values out of a system. So if you're looking at an indigenous population that is very in tune with natural systems, um, it might be that you take the aesthetic system that they have and translate it into, say, let's say Muji or these minimalist movements, uh, they often express themselves as an artistic form. But if a bunch of kids start saying, you know, I love this minimalism, that may lead to a behavior that might be more sustainable than, uh, you know, uh, loving gold-plated toilet seats. <laughs> so, so, so that also is that the, the, the artistic aesthetic thing can have a, a an impact. And then, um, and I think the last thing I'll say is that um, if you have a s new set of values like the hippie movement and you want to push out, you know, the whole earth movement, uh, often music, fashion and arts is a good way to get a global movement to kind of synchronize around values than an argument or a formula or some kind of uh, 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 system because the I think an artistic system gets more directly into... It's a better medium for spreading ideas. That, that's right. Which is why humor and music are so powerful. Much more, I, I see that in my podcast. You know, it's much more, it's much harder to convince somebody to change their mind logically as opposed to if you use music or humor because then you can actually go through the fortress of their defenses uh, and you can actually communicate and reach places that you otherwise can't. So they're much music and humor and art are much more powerful. And by the way, to continue what you're saying, this is where I think philosophy and my, my role comes into because people say, well, you're not very optimistic necessarily about the future. You're supposed to be very optimistic. And my answer is usually my job is not to be so optimistic my job is to be like a gadfly. My job is, and this is where art, I think, fits too with what you're saying, is that artists and philosophers should provoke, should surprise, should push us in different directions. They should not just toe the line and support necessarily what you're just doing, because this is how you push the envelope, how you break the mold, and how you reach new places and have breakthroughs and paradigm shifts and all of that. So I, I, I absolutely love what you're saying. Uh, now, we're running out of time, so let me uh, quickly switch our focus here to your utterly phenomenal book, which uh, is called Whiplash. Uh, and uh, I love the design. It's so brilliantly designed with black and white highlights here, and every chapter starts in like this very cool way. I absolutely love the, the font and everything. It's very, very well designed. Speaking of design, this is a masterpiece, I think. Um, so tell me, what's the thesis of your book, Whiplash? 
So the thesis of my book is that the internet and computers and Moore's law has substantially lowered the cost of innovation and the cost of through the cost of collaboration and other things going down. And it's created a, a, a system that has um, pushed innovation to the edges um, and has increased speed and complexity. So it's, it's similar to, you know, the part of the singularity argument and, um, and the book really goes through many different categories of, of fields from biology to uh, cryptocurrency to um, uh, the development of hardware and tries to give some principles for people who are trying to adapt to this new environment, um, principles that they can uh, uh, use as a way to think about how to survive or to uh, flourish in this uh, new environment. So it's kind of a matrix where I have nine principles, um, and then I have uh, uh, narratives uh, across different uh, industries uh, to try to illustrate those. Mm -hmm. And I would recommend people check it out because I think it's excellent. But let me see if I can sum this up. Uh, I think what you're saying is basically that technology has outpaced, or that's the premise, I think, of the book anyway, that technology has outpaced our ability to understand it. And then you provide a framework consisting of those nine principles which help us uh, understand it or have the best possible way, if not to control, to sort of nudge uh, sort of direction towards the best possible outcomes that we, we, we can hope for, I think. So is that, first of all, a, a good way to, to put it? I, I think that's, yes, I think that's, that's appropriate, yeah. Okay, so when did this happen and what are the costs to this happening by the way if that's the case then yeah i so i think it's continuing to happen it's a trend that started with i think uh uh so that's in a way a singularity of the the reason why i'm asking is because in a way this is the the, the one of the definitions of a singularity that i was talking about like beyond which our ability to understand it basically and and therefore predict the future falls apart yeah, yeah. So, so I, I do agree with you on. Um, That's the event horizon. We are, if if what you say is true, we are now at that event horizon. Then. Yes, um, I guess though the the reason. So, so to me, when I hear singularity, I think more about this uh, curve asymptote. So somehow the word, to me, is connected with the exponential. Right. Forget the cost. That like. This is the cause. I'm just saying you're claiming it's complexity that's bringing us there, and that's okay. Yeah, and I think I would suggest that um, depending on the scale, there has always been an unknowability and a complexity and an unpredictability. So at the so so I think you know you always have these sandwiches at some ultimate layer. It's probably almost known, and at geological scales, it's sort of is somewhat unpredictable, but then in shorter scales, it's per, like at an annual scale, it's pretty predictable. I would say that human civilization and society has become quite unpredictable, as you say, and continues to become so. Um, but at other scales, it's probably hasn't changed a, a whole lot. Um, but from the perspective of most of the people who would read the book, the world has changed. And, you know, this, this um, horizon where um, and, you know, and I and I and I think that um, again, it, depending on the field and depending on the time scale, it's still predictable in certain ways. Um, and I think my point, um, you know, and one 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 
of my principles, which was one of my favorites. We dropped it from the book and we actually might put it in the next one is um, uh, learning over education, which is right. that learning is what you do for yourself and education is what other people do to you. And I think one of the things is that since the world is continuing to change, you have to continue to learn. And so I think that um, the idea that, um, so so I guess I, may, I, I look at it less as kind of a event horizon or some sort of dot of singularity and think of it more as a, a, uh, ever increasing, uh, complexity that, uh, uh, challenges us to be more humble about what we think we can control. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. So, um, the last principle that, that you talk about number nine is systems over objects. And, uh, we touched a little bit on that when you talked about capitalism. Right. So talk to me just a little bit more, because this is the core of my criticism to institutions such as uh, Singularity University in particular or Silicon Valley in general, even that, you know, they claim to be new and this and that. But basically, they're just perpetuating and recreating the arguably the best parts of the old system. And so in a way, they're recreating it rather than changing it or or, uh, or even evolving it. Uh, and therefore, they're not necessarily the future or they're not open-ended towards the future because they, they just want to copy and paste the, the present of the current system and how that system then has certain particular kind of systemic failures, systemic structures that re re lead to certain particular systemic outcomes that cannot be changed unless you actually change the system. This basically has been the gist of one of my arguments against them. Yeah, that's right. I think um, that uh, I think there are a lot of people in Silicon Valley who are systems thinkers in to the extent that it's a part of the strategy, but they are all individuals in a system and objects in a system rather than being part of the system. And being part of the system is interesting because it's a very humble participant, like a citizen in a government or a individual in an ecosystem. So, um, you know, we often say you're not stuck in traffic, you are traffic. <laughs> and, and the idea is that, you know, I think a lot of these companies think about themselves versus the system and the, their self is this kind of object oriented thing. And as an they think they're unique, which is why they call themselves unicorns. <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah. Right. They see themselves as totally outside of the city. I'm different. I'm a unicorn for God's sake. How could you compare me to this? That's right. That's right. And 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 that's and 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 even as a community, they're somewhat untethered from the local government and untethered from the rest of the world. And so, so I don't think they like to think about themselves as a humble participant in a system. And this causes this kind of. And when they're successful, though, the companies that are successful and become unicorns, they become. You know, I don't think they like to be called cancers, but sort of from a systems perspective, it's almost cancerous in that they become either monopolistic or they become so big that they actually take the nutrients out of the system for from others. Now, compared to Wall Street and the other financial systems, it is a generally growing system. So I think the argument that Silicon Valley will say is that we're not zero sum, the pie is increasing, but um but it's 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 hard to say because it's it's not zero sum depending on how you measure it. 
Um, but there are certain things that are there's I mean, there's limits to growth and there's, you know, the, there's only so much physical stuff. You know, I wrote this article some time ago called Why Technology is the Future of Politics and, the, and Politics is the Future of Technology. And I argued that, you know, the view per perpetuated by Silicon Valley in general and Singularity University in particular is that we need more money, capital, technology, and everything will be fine. But, you know, go, uh, the golden state is the poorest state in the United States, by the way, when you take into consideration uh, cost of living. Um, and, and if you go to other places, and so Silicon Valley has the highest conglomeration of capital and technology in the world, and yet when you go downtown San Francisco or Los Angeles or some other places, me and my wife were driving through California. As Canadians, we were kind of shocked by the levels of poverty that was on display everywhere. I mean, mass, mass shocking poverty everywhere that you couldn't escape downtown Los Angeles or San Francisco. And as a Canadian, that kind of shocks me. And so if you come to Canada, we have less capital and less technology, but you don't have that much poverty on display. You go to Scandinavia, even less capital and less technology, and yet a lot less. So therefore, it's very obvious, at least to me, that it's not the solution is not technology and capital. The solution is something else that lacks there. And it's at the system level. And therefore, if you're looking at system, it's kind of a cultural slash political slash social slash ideological or philosophical level, if you will. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No, I, I, I totally agree. And I think, um, um, you know, I think the other the other risk is um, uh, even when they look at the system, I mean, I think it's 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 just if if you've been successful, first of all, when you become a billionaire, everybody treats you like you're smart. And it's very difficult to become self-aware enough to know how and, and to become humble, even though you built a company and become a billionaire. And so I think billionaires need to do what the Roman emperors used to do, which is have somebody who would tell them all the time, and you are mortal too. But the thing is now billionaires tell themselves, oh, I'm not going to be mortal because I'm going to defeat aging. Yeah, and yeah. so they think they are gods in some ways. And that self-perpetuating prophecy that, oh, I made money, therefore I'm very smart. And if I'm smart in making money, I'm therefore smart in politics. I'm smart in social culture and I can tell people what to do in all those other fields that have nothing to do with money. Yeah. And, you know, and there's a lot of, you know, first of all, there's a, a number of them, so they're enough to be a culture. And then you have storytellers like Ayn Rand and others who have kind of created a framework for thinking about themselves as... Self-congratulatory self framework. And, and, and some of them are quite smart, you know, but I think the problem is that even if you're super smart... Even if they were, let's say, geniuses, I think that you can't, from a perch on top, actually understand the complexity um, of the world and actually intervene in a in a appropriate way. Many of them are geniuses, but you know, I've and let me just be totally um, undiplomatic here and tell you one of the lessons I've learned after interviewing two hundred and thirty of the smartest people around the world, and that's probably not a good thing, but. You know, I've learned that genius and stupidity are roommates and they reside under the same roof. 
because you can have people who are brilliant geniuses in one field and yet in the same time they, they go into another field and they totally have no clue what they're talking about and yet because they're so good in that one field they believe they're entitled to be right in the other field too. <laughs> mm-hmm. no, and and it- and that's common. And I think you you mentioned Caesars, but I, I I was remembering there was an essay that I read a long time ago. I can't remember who wrote it, but it was it was talking about what's called the Caesar complex. So if you become a Caesar, you it takes every part of you and amplifies it, so that if you're narrow, you burn down the whole city, you know. And so I think there is also this other thing that happens once people stop telling you you're wrong, and uh, and it it does start to warp. Um, uh, values as well. And it's, I think it, there's a similar risk of that. Yeah. And I, to be honest, one of the things that got me confirmed when, uh, concerned when I was for 10 weeks at Singularity University in Silicon Valley was that there's this reverence for those people who have achieved a billion dollar net worth or more. There's a reverence for them. Uh, and, and we fail to see them as human beings quite often because you see they have a billion dollars or something. And my impression was that they do stupid stuff all the time. Some of it very, very stupid, actually, and dangerous, actually. But we're really running out of time. So let me re- ask you here. We have about 12 minutes. Let me ask you here. What's the biggest lesson from your book, Whiplash, so that then we can switch and talk about your thesis? Yeah, I think the um, biggest lesson from my book is... Uh, uh, I think the biggest lesson from my book is probably... You know the 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 principle that I have is that I like is compasses over maps, or um, it's 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 similar to the things around emergence, but it's it's this idea that um, you have you should have a compass heading, a trajectory, but what and once that's strong and that could be values or it could be a a a, a, a process, um, you need to be very agile, and then there's a principle pull over push, but pulling things from the network as you need them. And, um, and I think focusing less on planning and, and more on values, ethics, and a sensibility, uh, actually is a, is a, a, a fairly decent way to survive in a system where, as you said, um, uh, predictability is no longer, a. a an easy thing to achieve. And and when you were talking about local optimization, it reminded me actually that Many again, we are kind of in this planetary prisoners dilemma where all those companies and billionaires are optimizing locally very efficiently and effectively at the local scale, so they they re- reach maximum efficiency. But that leads to a global disequilibrium uh, or suboptimum outcome at the global mm-hmm. scale, hence the global prisoners dilemma. And the only way is just like in the prisoners dilemma, the two prisoners must stop to. Um, compete against each other and start instead to cooperate the same thing to me seems right now at the planetary level that we must uh, we must get to um, now okay so let's talk about your upcoming PhD thesis that I had a little preview at here called the practice of change uh, fantastic work I think in some ways it's pushing the envelope beyond way beyond whiplash actually um, And the main question that you start with is, quote, how can we understand and effectively intervene in interconnected, complex, self-adapted systems, end of quote, which is what we were talking about. So tell us, how can we do that? I mean, I think it connects a lot to what we've talked about, which is, and and I I draw on the work of Donella Meadows, who... um, 
talked a lot about how you intervene in complex systems, and uh, you know, and 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 I'll I'll use a uh, an illustration uh, uh, that I use in the uh, paper about um, monopoly. So everyone knows the game Monopoly. Uh, it turns out in um, two, uh, 1903 or so, uh, 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 it was actually invented. It was a based on a game called Landlord's Game which was uh, by the Georgists, uh, who were basically the precursors to communists. And they were talking about how rents and property ownership uh, would drive people to uh, uh, tenants that were impoverished. And it was a game to try to teach kids the perils of capitalism. Winner takes it all kind of outcomes. But, but, but the game was to show how that was bad and, um, and teach kids a, you know, away from capitalism. But Parker Brothers just changed the goal from teaching people about the perils of capitalism to you are now the capitalist and you win when you drive your friends to bankruptcy. And what's interesting is that uh, the rules primarily stayed the same. They just changed the goals. And when you look at a system, uh, let's say the uh, economy or climate, uh, we're doing a lot of work trying to come up with new rules and regulations and uh, trying to figure out technologies to try to create, uh, let's say, uh, uh, enlightened self-interest to try to get people to harm the environment less or, or harm poor people less. But if the goal is still to try to make as much money as you can, because the old sayings, I'd rather be rich than stupid. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> you know, that's the goal, right? So, so the, the, the problem is if that's the goal, you can throw all these rules in but often the system will evolve around these rules and you will continue to be using all of the tools at your disposal um, to become the biggest, most powerful company or the richest, most powerful person. And, um, and again, we, can, we have great rules like antitrust and other things that we should be using to tackle the perils of things like monopolies. But ultimately, if we could change the goals, I think and get people so that their primary goal in life wasn't to make a lot of money and to eliminate and drive to bankruptcy their friends, but in fact to collaborate and to create systems that are uh, measured more about um, happiness and flourishing. Um, I think the behavior of these companies would change. Now, it might not need me to do that because you start, you now start to see kids are are not wanting to go to companies that have the wrong values. You see people boycotting products that aren't good. You see the Parkland kids fun, finally coming up, um, you know, protesting guns in a way that politicians were never able to do. You see the Times Up movement, you know, and so so there are these movements coming that are going through this cultural, uh, somewhat emotional layer to change the behavior of people. And if you can change the behavior of everyone in the system, then I think that changes. So, so, so Donella Meadows point was the power to transcend paradigms. And one paradigm is the paradigm of economic measurement, which drives an evolutionary dynamics towards, uh, the, uh, focusing on financial returns as a primary measure, which pushes towards competition, extraction and exploitation. But if the values, if you transcend that and say, you know what, I'm not just going to measure everything in money, I'm going to measure it in uh, uh, things like the, the richness of experience, the, the, how, how naturally uh, uh, robust something feels like, and, and also just measuring things in size. So, you know, having a family twice as large doesn't make you happier, you know, um, having, so, so, so I think there are a lot of things that we already know, um, 
don't actually make you happier if you have more of. Um, and then there are other things also, which is translating everything to money. So the economists would have us believe that with through a utility function, everything can be calculated as money. But it turns out that in organizations, if you start to reward people financially, sometimes that creates a transactional feeling for those behaviors and people who might otherwise do them stop doing them. Or or the one that Larry Lessig likes to use is, is sex. If you pay for sex, it doesn't feel as good as if you get it from, <laughs> you know, from an amateur for free, right? So, so there are many things that when you convert into a transaction, reduces the value. And so it's not that those things aren't existing already in society, but the, the value of money has really taken off um, to a, a destructive level. And so it's about rebalancing this. And I think the point that I'm trying to explore in my uh, uh, thesis is, is both the, the way in which you do those interventions, um, focusing on, on social inequity, climate, and um, um, health, and, um, and how, how we might uh, redesign everything from higher education to uh, uh, the way we think about um, uh, uh, managing communities um, to try to tackle, I think, the biggest problems today, which are all these wicked, complex problems. Mm -hmm. And let me just um, do a couple of short quotes here. So in the beginning, you say that your goal is to, quote, ask questions that drive us to the conversations about first principles and how we should design and intervene, end of quote. Very Socratic approach, by the way, to ask questions and to start a conversation. And then one of the starting claims you make is, quote, I argue that markets do not provide the appropriate mechanism for addressing the complex societal problems that face us. You see, that's very different from what Silicon Valley says. Silicon Valley says just more capital and more technology and we solve all, all of our problems. That's basically, which is why we need more venture capital, more startups. And if everyone's a startup, we'll not have any problems in our planet. Basically the argument. And you say... System, uh, systems dynamics provides a way to understand and intervene in a complex system design as way to describe intervention from within complex systems. So that's, that's where I think you're really kind of like uh, pushing the envelope further. But uh, we are running out of time. We probably only have like three or four minutes here left. So... And of course, as you said, uh, I used to be a Singularity fanboy. So uh, I started out uh, calling everything the Singularity, Singularity FM, Singularity Info. Let me read perhaps a very long quote from your thesis here, which talks about your position on the Singularity, because I think it may be the most time efficient way to share your view with our audience, which is, it goes like this quote, the new species of Silicon Valley mega companies which engage in the machines of bits are developed and run in great part by people who believe in a new religion, singularity. The new religion is not a fundamental change in the paradigm, which is exactly my point, but rather the natural evolution of the worship of exponential growth applied to modern computation and science. The asymptote of the exponential growth of computational power is artificial intelligence. The notion of singularity that AI with its exponential growth would supersede humans and that everything we have done until now is insignificant is a religion created by people who have experience of using computation to solve problems hitheretofore considered impossibly complex for machines. They have found the perfect partner in digital computation 
a knowable, controllable system of thinking and creating with rapidly increasing ability to harness and process complexity and bestowing wealth and power on those who have mastered it. In Silicon Valley, the combination of groupthink and the financial success of this cult of technology has created a positive feedback system that has almost no capacity for regulating itself because it receives scant negative feedback. While many holding these beliefs would resist having them compared to a religion, instead arguing that their ideas are science and evidence-based, those who embrace singularity engaged in quite a bit of arm-waving and make leaps of faith based more on trajectories that ground truths than ground truths to explain their ultimate visions. And then uh, you go on to say that, but if modern corporations are a precursor to our transcendence, the singularitarian view that with more computing and biohacking we will somehow solve all the world's problems or that the singularity will solve, solve us seems hopelessly naive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Who said that? That sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> How do you unpack this for us in a minute or two? Well, I, you know, I would love to hear if you disagree at what your criticism would be. Well, to be honest with you, I don't. I love it. It's it's kind of what I've been about for 10 years now, which is the modus operandi, the, the core of my argument. Technology is not enough. Capitalism is not enough. Uh, Silicon Valley is not enough. In fact, I've gotten so extreme, maybe, that now I'm concerned that Silicon Valley may not not save the world, but may actually end up destroying it. I mean, look at uh, Facebook, Cambridge Analytica. Uh, the other day I was interviewing a, a great, brilliant young mathematician who started two companies who are a lot more capable than Cambridge Analytica. And they're called uh, Quid and Primer, both huge defense contractors. Uh, so... I agree with everything that you say. I can't, <laughs> okay. I can't argue with it. Because I, I, when I got your email, I thought you were going to pick it apart. Um, I, you know, I think, I think the, the, I think, you know, I would finish by actually saying that I think you have a tremendously important role. I think the people who uh, are taking your path, starting as fanboys and going into the science and starting to think about systems. I I started out also, I was mentioned my first, at the beginning of the interview, my first dream was to upload my brain. And it's, that's where it started, you know? And I think that anyone who's excited about the future of humanity and science gets a very optimistic view, especially if you read science fiction and things like that. But then the reality of the world hits you. And I think this moment when the reality of the world hits you, and this is where meditation and other things are important. First, you have to have the uh, moral stamina to not be freaked out and still be happy and optimistic. But you also then embark on a mission um, to try to uh, subvert this, uh, 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 you know, uh, growth-oriented uh, trajectory. And I think that your role, as well as my role as a part of a uh, a science and technology institution is to try to bring a sensibility of, um, you know, and regulation has this kind of legal word, but it also has a much better biological systems word. So, you know, when you upregulate and downregulate your hormones, it's to try to make you uh, uh, happy and it's try to make you appropriate. And when you are unable to regulate yourself, you get fevers and you get cancer. And so regulation is not a bad thing. And I think that um, you want systems that self-regulate. Otherwise, they they basically go into some sort of uh, uh, extinction-like 
path. And so I, I think, you know, the, 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 so, so anyways, I, I think that if we can figure out an appropriate way to communicate with people, the risks of exponential thinking and the way to regulate in a way that doesn't take away the, uh, the flourishing, but that, um, tries to, uh, 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 make the system, uh, uh, and again, I think Self-adaptive systems are also another important thing. So in the environment and the e ecosystem in our body, there's no one in charge. The system adapts itself because it's robust. There's no messiah. There's no central planner. There's no unicorn that's figuring it all out. And that's a Soviet idea. And I think the idea that some central planner somewhere in Silicon Valley can control everything is is actually we've kind of, especially in a complex system, isn't going to work. So you called Silicon Valley the Soviets. I love it. <laughs> Loving it. <laughs> and that's a Soviet idea. Okay, we're behind okay. schedule. So but let me ask you two quick questions. Yeah. Where can people find more about Joey Ito? Okay, so that's easy. There's joey.ito.com, which is uh, 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 my website that has links to just about everything. Um, uh, I occasionally try to do videos and podcasts like you, so I'd love uh, for people to look at those and, as you say, <laughs> write reviews and things like that. But um, I'm publishing more uh, in other ways um, to try to get to other channels, but but my website has a link to everything, so that'd be great. I watched some of your episodes, and my favorite is the one with Seth Godin, by the way. <laughs> okay, he's yeah, it's fun. Who is, who is amazing, even though you have many other great ones. And lastly, what do you want for our parting message to be today? After 85, 90 minutes with Joy Ito today, what's the most important thing that our audience should take away from us, from you today? You know, I think it's, it's um, to have a critical view of science, technology, and everything without losing hope and optimism. And that balance, I think, is, is essential for whether you're a technologist or you're a lawmaker or anyone else. Joy Ito. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you. If you guys enjoy this show, you can help me make it better in a couple of ways. You can go and write a review on iTunes or you can simply make a donation. 